Chapter Three, Part Two of Moments with Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Alkali Desert. The poetry was all in the anticipation. There is none in the reality. Imagine a vast, waveless ocean, stricken dead and turned to ashes. Imagine this solemn waste, tufted with ash-dusted sage-bushes. Imagine the lifeless silence and solitude that belong to such a place. Imagine a coach, creeping like a bug, through the midst of this shoreless level, and sending up tumbled volumes of dust, as if it were a bug that went by steam. Imagine this aching monotony of toiling and ploughing, kept up hour after hour, and the shore still as far away as ever, apparently. Imagine team, driver, coach, and passengers, so deeply coated with ashes, that they are all one colourless colour. Imagine ash-drifts, roosting above moustaches and eyebrows, like snow accumulations, on boughs and bushes. This is the reality of it. The sun beats down with dead, blistering, relentless malignity. The perspiration is welling from every pore in man and beast but scarcely a sign of it finds its way to the surface. It is absorbed before it gets there. There is not the faintest breath of air stirring. There is not a merciful shred of cloud in all the brilliant firmament. There is not a living creature visible in any direction whither one searches the blank level that stretches its monotonous miles on every hand. There is not a sound, not a sigh, not a whisper, not a buzz, or a whir of wings, or a distant pipe of bird, not even a sob from the lost souls that doubtless people that dead air. ARRIVAL IN CARSON CITY By and by, Carson City was pointed out to us. It nestled in the edge of a great plain, and was a sufficient number of miles away to look like an assemblage of mere white spots in the shadow of a grim range of mountains overlooking it, whose summits seemed lifted clear out of companionship and conscious of earthly things. We arrived, disembarked, and the stage went on. It was a wooden town, its population two thousand souls. The main street consisted of four or five blocks of little frame stores which were too high to sit down on, but not too high for various other purposes. In fact, hardly high enough. They were packed close together, side by side, as if room were scarce in that mighty plain. The sidewalk was of boards that were more or less loose, and inclined to rattle when walked upon. In the middle of the town, opposite the stores, was the plaza, which is native to all towns beyond the Rocky Mountains, a large, unfenced, level vacancy, with a liberty pole in it, and very useful as a place for public auctions, horse trades, and mass meetings, and likewise for teamsters to camp in. Two other sides of the plaza were faced by stores, offices, and stables. The rest of Carson City was pretty scattering. We were introduced to several citizens, at the stage office, and on the way up to the governor's from the hotel, among others, to a Mr. Harris, who was on horseback. He began to say something, but interrupted himself with the remark, "'I'll have to get you to excuse me a minute. Yonder is the witness that swore, 
I helped to rob the California coach, a piece of impertinent intermeddling, sir, for I am not even acquainted with the man. Then he rode over, and began to rebuke the stranger with a six-shooter, and the stranger began to explain with another. When the pistols were emptied, the stranger resumed his work, mending a whiplash, and Mr. Harris rode by with a polite nod, homeward bound, with a bullet through one of his lungs, and several through his hips, and from them issued little rivulets of blood that coursed down the horse's sides and made the animal look quite picturesque. I never saw Harris shoot a man after that, but it recalled to mind that first day in Carson. Lake Tahoe Three months of camp life on Lake Tahoe would restore an Egyptian mummy to his pristine vigor, and give him an appetite like an alligator. I do not mean the oldest and driest mummies, of course, but the fresher ones. The air up there in the clouds is very pure and fine, bracing and delicious. And why shouldn't it be? It is the same the angels breathe. I think that hardly any amount of fatigue can be gathered together that a man cannot sleep off in one night on the sand by its side, not under a roof, but under the sky. It seldom or never rains there in the summer time. I know a man who went there to die, but he made a failure of it. He was a skeleton when he came, and could hardly stand. He had no appetite, and did nothing but read tracts, and reflect on the future. Three months later he was sleeping out of doors regularly, eating all he could hold, three times a day, and chasing game over mountains three thousand feet high for recreation. He was a skeleton no longer, but weighed part of a ton. This is no fancy sketch, but the truth. His disease was consumption. I confidently commend his experience to other skeletons. As soon as we had eaten breakfast, we got in the boat and skirted along the lake shore about three miles, and disembarked. We liked the appearance of the place, and so we claimed some three hundred acres of it and stuck our notice on a tree. It was yellow pine timberland, a dense forest of trees a hundred feet high, and from one to five feet through at the butt. It was necessary to fence our property, or we could not hold it. That is to say, it was necessary to cut down trees here and there, and make them fall in such a way as to form a sort of enclosure with pretty wide gaps in it. We cut down three trees apiece, and found it such heartbreaking work that we decided to rest our case on those. If they held the property, well and good. If they didn't, let the property spill out through the gaps and go. It was no use to work ourselves to death merely to save a few acres of land. Next day we came back to build a house, for a house was also necessary in order to hold the property. We decided to build a substantial log house and excite the envy of the brigade boys, but by the time we had cut and trimmed the first log it seemed unnecessary to be so elaborate, and so we concluded to build it of saplings. However, two saplings duly cut and trimmed compelled recognition of the fact that a still more modest architecture would satisfy the law, and so we concluded to build a brush house. We devoted the next day to this work, but we did so much sitting around and discussing 
that by the middle of the afternoon we had achieved only a half-way sort of affair which one of us had to watch while the other cut brush lest if both turned our backs we might not be able to find it again it had such a strong family resemblance to the surrounding vegetation but we were satisfied with it we slept in the sand close to the water's edge between two protecting boulders which took care of the stormy night winds for us we never took any paragoric to make us sleep at the first break of dawn we were always up and running foot races to tone down excess of physical vigour and exuberance of spirits that is johnny was but i held his hat while smoking the pipe of peace after breakfast we watched the sentinel peaks put on the glory of the sun and followed the conquering light as it swept among the shadows and set the captive crags and forests free we watched the tinted pictures grow and brighten upon the water till every little detail of forest precipice and pinnacle was wrought in and finished and the miracle of the enchanter complete then to business that is drifting around in the boat we were on the north shore there the rocks on the bottom are sometimes grey sometimes white this gives the marvellous transparency of the water a fuller advantage than it has elsewhere on the lake we usually pushed out a hundred yards or so from the shore and then lay down on the thwarts in the sun and let the boat drift by the hour whither it would we seldom talked it interrupted the sabbath stillness and marred the dreams the luxurious rest and indolence brought so singularly clear was the water that where it was only twenty or thirty feet deep the bottom was so perfectly distinct that the boat seemed floating in air yes where it was even eighty feet deep every little pebble was distinct every speckled trout every hand breadth of sand often as we lay on our faces a granite boulder as large as a village church would start out of the bottom apparently and seem climbing up rapidly to the surface till presently it threatened to touch our faces and we could not resist the impulse to seize the oar and avert the danger but the boat would float on and the boulder descend again and then we could see that when we had been exactly above it it must still have been twenty or thirty feet below the surface down through the transparency of these great depths the water was not merely transparent but dazzlingly brilliantly so all objects seen through it had a bright strong vividness not only of outline but of every minute detail which they would not have had when seen simply through the same depth of atmosphere so empty and airy did all spaces seem below us and so strong was the sense of floating high aloft in mid-nothingness that we called these boat excursions balloon voyages sometimes on lazy afternoons we lolled on the sand in camp and smoked pipes and read some old well-worn novels at night by the campfire we played euchre and seven-up to strengthen the mind and played them with cards so greasy and defaced that only a whole summer's acquaintance with them could enable the student to tell the ace of clubs from the jack of diamonds we never slept in our house it never occurred to us for one thing and besides it was built to hold the ground and that was enough 
We did not wish to strain it. Selling out a mine. The Gould and Curry claim comprised twelve hundred feet, and it all belonged originally to the two men whose name it bears. Mr. Curry owned two-thirds of it, and he said that he sold it out for twenty-five hundred dollars in cash, and an old plug-horse that ate up his market value in hay and barley in seventeen days by the watch. And he said that Gould sold out for a pair of second-hand government blankets, and a bottle of whiskey that killed nine men in three hours, and that an unoffending stranger that smelled the cork was disabled for life. Four years afterward, the mine thus disposed of was worth in the San Francisco market seven million six hundred thousand dollars in gold coin. End of chapter three, part two.